0: And welcome to the Fix, the podcast that's a deep dive into Lightroom, Photoshop, and post processing. I'm Jan Kabili, your host for the Fix. In this episode, my very special guest is someone who almost needs no introduction: the famous Mr. Dave Cross. You may know Dave Cross from his many years at Calby Media, as one of the Photoshop guys, and in his training on Creative Live. Dave Cross has taught so many people how to use Photoshop throughout the years. We're really lucky to have him here tonight to show us some Photoshop tricks and to help us break some of those bad habits that we all get as we use Photoshop. Let's talk to Dave Cross. Hi, Dave. Hi, Jan. How are you today?
1: I'm fantastic. Glad to be here.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you're doing us the honor of being with us on The Fix. I know you have so much great stuff to share with our viewers and listeners. And I understand that a little bit later in the show, you're going to be sharing your screen and walk us through some tutorials for using luminosity masking and layer adjustments or adjustment layers, I should say. Exactly. Can yeah, you give us, a, give us a little teaser about what you're going to show us?
1: Sure. It's it's the, the kind of thing where, you know, when you make an adjustment to a photo, right, needless to say, a lot of people make global adjustments, either Lightroom or in Fo- Camera Raw or Photoshop. But this is kind of taking it up a notch where you say, I really want to be able to do very specific adjustments, for example, just to the darkest areas or to the lightest areas. So we create these things called luminosity masks. I'm going to show you how you can do it once and then have an action that'll do it automatically for you from then on. And then to build on that, how to use adjustment layers to make very flexible, non-destructive adjustments to those specific areas. It's actually a really cool way to take your your images up a whole nother notch.
0: Well, I know that everyone's going to be waiting with bated breath to find <laughs> out how to do that. But before we get there, um, I just want to chat with you a little. You know, I've had the great opportunity to watch you teach quite a few times. We go back a long time, right? Yes, didn't? we do.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> when did you start? I started in... A, I started teaching Photoshop and stuff in 1999. What about you?
1: I started in uh, the day Photoshop came out basically in 1990. Oh. Um, I had been teaching Illustrator for a few years before that because Illustrator came out in 1987. And if I really want to go back, I first thing I taught was PageMaker, if you can believe that, in like 1985 or something. Uh, so I've been doing this a long time. But the, the thing that I think has, for me, been the luckiest is I've been there from the beginning. So I kind of grew with the program and saw when layers came out, how much easier that made things in Photoshop. But I basically, since 1990, I've made my living teaching Photoshop one way or another.
0: Wow, you may be—you may have the most longevity of any photo, <laughs> Photoshop instructor I know. You make me look like a babe in the woods. <laughs> but I'm, I was going to say that I've had the great opportunity to watch you teach many times over the years. And one thing I've noticed about you is you're really a stickler for your students doing things right. In other words, you like to encourage them to develop good habits and to right. break those kind of bad habits that we mm-hmm. all develop over the years. Yep. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the most egregious (laughs) bad habits you see out there and how you suggest fixing them.
1: Sure. And And I mean, I always preface an answer like that by saying, on the one hand, as long as you get the end result that you want, that's kind of the most important thing in the short term. But in the long term, the problem is if you then develop that habit of, for example, grabbing the eraser and just deleting part of a layer that could come back to bite you down the road where suddenly a year later you're working on a similar project and you realize, wait a minute, those pixels don't exist anymore because I deleted them. So for me, the the biggest bad habit that people develop early on because it's not obvious is they don't work in a, or I should say the other way, they work in a destructive way. In other words, they do things like take the eraser and delete part of a layer or make a selection and press delete or something of that nature. And at the time that's fine. But again, as I said, the, the challenge is what if down the road you want to either change your mind or show a little bit more of the layer or you have working with a client and they say something like, actually, sh- let's let's use more of that person. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, there is no more of that person because I deleted half of them. That's kind of the, the biggest one. And the other thing is uh, I'm a big stickler for I obviously use layers. I think everyone should. And I try as much as possible. I don't like merging, I don't like flattening, because to me, that's another case of you could be painting yourself into a corner. And it's not just about changing your mind, because that's some people say, well, I don't change my mind. It's also, I think it's very important from a perspective of either repurposing, where you go back to a document and use parts of it in a different way, or the biggest example I give, and people say this all the time to me, and I've heard this many, many times over the years, is, well, I was working in Photoshop, and I was playing around, And I got a result I really liked. And I went back a week later and went, how on earth did I do that? Right? Because at that moment in time, it made perfect sense. But then when you look at it later, you've got nothing to help you. You've got no structure in your document to say, oh, wait, I did a Gaussian blur as a smart filter. And I did this adjustment layer because I want to be able to go back and look backwards and figure out how I did something so I can replicate it again. So to oh, me, working non-destructively is not just about changing your mind. It's also about helping yourself in terms of how you did it or repurposing and reusing um, that kind of thing. So it's it's that's probably the biggest habit that I wish everyone who use Photoshop would develop is trying to be as non-destructive as possible.
0: Those are great ideas, and I really like what you're saying about it's not just because it's uh, to help to help keep a, a clean copy of your image or one that you can go back and re-edit, but also to remind yourself of what you did. What right. a great idea. I really hadn't thought of that.
1: I mean, so, as, as a simple example, I was working with someone just the other day who brought with them a, a portrait they had done, and they said, I love the way this looks, and now I'm trying to do it again. And I said, well, show me your Photoshop document. And they did, and it had two layers in it. I'm like, uh, clearly, you didn't only use two layers. They said, oh, that's because I started a long time ago. Once, once I was happy, I merged and moved on, and I kind of just went, gah. like that's <laughs> you're just causing yourself trouble. And that was a perfect example of if they had just kept their layers, yes, it would have made a bigger document. But I'd much rather have a bigger document with lots of information than a nice you know, slim trim, low file size document that really doesn't help me at all.
0: I understand. You know, it strikes me that the problems that you just talked about all have to do with the fact that Photoshop is a pixel editor. Mm -hmm. Think about Lightroom, on the other hand. With Lightroom, you get that nice history panel that keeps every step you ever did, not only when you're working in this session, but all the way down the road, you know, a year from now, two years from now, you have that. And then you also have a inherent non-destructive editing in Lightroom that you don't get in Photoshop. I think
1: that's exactly the problem is because Photoshop is such an older program, they've introduced or added non-destructive techniques, but you have to make a conscious effort to use them. Whereas in Lightroom, it happens automatically. In fact, you'd have to deliberately do something in Lightroom to be destructive, and it would be pretty hard. Whereas in Photoshop, it's very easy to just go, oh, I'll just erase that. You know, and, and if I, if it was up to me, I would, and I know you couldn't do this, but almost start fresh with a brand new version of Photoshop that by default everything was non destructive. But that probably wouldn't work. But it would be nice in, a, in an ideal world. That would be great if, if that was the only choice. But unfortunately, now you have to make a conscious effort to be non destructive.
0: Yes, you do. And so what I'm doing about that when I teach is I try to teach people to use Lightroom and Photoshop together sure, and not definitely. to think of them as an either or, you know, but they both right. do different things, yeah. have different strengths. And no really, you know, you need them both to do the to do everything most people want to do when they get good at Photoshop and at Lightroom. Um, sure, sure. So are there any other examples of uh, non-destructive editing techniques? I know some, but I'm sure you could. Inform well, us I mean, about some others.
1: another example, and one of the ones we'll use later in the tutorial is an adjustment layer. I mean. A lot of people learn pretty early on, hey, if I press Command or Control-L for levels, I can adjust this document. Well, you can, but as soon as you click OK, that's your new document. And if you save it and close it, now you can't go back and change it or, again, remember how you did it. So using adjustment layers, to me, is a much better approach. Same thing goes with filters. In the past, you would duplicate a layer and hit, say, a Gaussian blur and click OK, but then there was no way to tell how much did I blur that. Now, instead, I use smart filters, which, among other things, show up in the layers panel and tell me, you did a Gaussian blur of X. So I can either go back and edit it or reuse it or, again, just remind me how I did it. So those are probably, along with just layers in general, adjustment layers and smart filters, and my favorite of all smart objects, uh, just allow you to be – to experiment so much more. And I think it really also enhances your creativity if you know you can be – don't be afraid to go down and try 15 steps because you can come back to that certain step where you did that smart filter and readjust it and see it trickle down through all the things you've done, which you can't do if you're relying on, oh, this is the other thing. A lot of people rely, I think, too much on the history panel. And we have to remember the history panel is very linear. So once you get to a certain point, it's very, very difficult to go back 10 steps and say, I just want to tweak this filter a little bit. That's not going to help you.
0: That's a good point. There is a kind of an option from the side menu of the history panel that allows you to do not just linear history. Isn't that right? right? It's
1: nonlinear editing, but even that's a little bit misleading because it still doesn't mean, for example, I could jump back 10 steps and re-edit a filter because it's not going to trickle through the same way it would if you had a smart filter. So it's a little better, but it still doesn't give you the same level of editing ability as you would with doing things in the smart filter smart object kind of way.
0: Now, do you find that there are a lot of people who just aren't aware of non-destructive editing techniques like using smart filters, smart objects, or is it that they know, but they just have ingrained these old habits from the (laughs) old days? What do you think? I,
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think they're longer term users. We are definitely creatures of habit and we do things a way that are comfortable for us and changing that approach is a little different. I also think for someone who's fairly new to Photoshop, it isn't, they're not as much as Adobe likes to word use the word discoverable, sometimes these things aren't very discoverable. For example, if you went to the filter menu and you saw a command that said convert for smart filters, okay, I mean smart sounds like a good idea, but you know, maybe if it said convert for re-editable filters you can continue to work with or something, I don't know. But so I think it's a bit of both. It's it's on the one hand, longtime users are creatures of habit, and on the other hand, newer people, it's just not obvious. For example, adjustment layers, if you are in Photoshop, you see a menu right there at the top, it says image adjustments, and there's all these things, levels, curves, you have to go finding adjustment layers, like they're not in your face obvious, unfortunately. So that's another example where you'd have to kind of know they were there to be able to use them.
0: So what's your advice to people who go, okay, I believe you. I think you're right. I want to do something about it. Where do they go? What do they do?
1: Well, basically, I think it just means, first of all, anything that's got the word smart in it, so smart object, smart filter, and anything that's layer-based, so adjustment layer versus adjustment, which are subtle, sounds pretty much the same, but it means I spend most of my time based around everything in the layers panel and see if I can do it there. If I can't, then I'll look and see, is there an option B that has the word smart in it, which at least means I'm going to have some level of editability.
0: Great advice. Those are two really good tips. In addition, if people wanted to go, I just need a teacher. I need to go take a course or read a book or something. What is a resource or are there resources that approach things in this way?
1: Well, I mean, I've been preaching the gospel of non-destructiveness for a long time. So almost every tutorial or class I've ever done, I actually have a a dvd with photoshop cafe that's basically called the non-destructive workflow in photoshop and it's all about working non-destructively i have individual classes i've done so i would say almost any tutorial and video i do covers it on some level because that's just the way i work day to day Uh, but certainly if you're looking at any training source and look for things that talk about non-destructive or working with flexibility or anything like that i think that's the approach you want to take that's
0: terrific, and I know I'll give you a little plug for uh, something I saw you do. Um, you've been working with Creative Live, right? Yes. And yeah. I know you did. Um, you've done a number of different courses, and I sort of heard little bits here and there, little snippets. And you throw out great tips there too for non-destructive editing and breaking your bad habits, which is right. what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have a number of classes there, including one that was actually called, I think, it was called Everyday Photoshop from Workflow to Smart Flow meaning that people talk about workflow, but I'd much rather talk about a smart flow, meaning working in a smarter way.
0: Well, I even like your catchy title, which is Breaking Bad.
1: <laughs> I wanted to do that as a creative live class, and they're like, yeah, I don't think we could probably use that name on a broadcast that we're doing live because it sounds a little too much like that other show.
0: <laughs> oh, well, it's not too much like that for us. So we, that may be the title of this podcast. Um, but, you know, Thank you so much for sharing that information. I love hearing about it, but I'd love even more to see some of your techniques. So would you share your screen with us?
1: Yeah, definitely. All right, so here's an example using this idea of of luminosity mask. And the idea again of a luminosity mask is I wanna be able to take individual areas like the very dark shadow parts of this image versus the highlights, but I wanna be able to access those very easily. So I'm gonna do this on this image, but recording an action so I can use it any anytime that I want. So that means before, for anyone who's not familiar with an action, just simply means start recording whatever you do and you'll be able to play them back automatically. So on my actions panel, I'm just going to make a new action, call it something so I know what it is and then hit the record button. So that just means from now on, everything I do will be recorded so that I can use it over and over again. So this whole technique basically revolves around the channels panel. And if you're, again, not familiar with channels, that's just another way of looking at the information, the pixel information here, but that I can massage and work with in a certain way. So the first step I'm going to do having looked at the channels is hold down command and option on the Mac or control alt and click once on that RGB thumbnail and you'll see it has made a selection of kind of the brighter areas. So this is a shortcut for selecting the highlights. But I wanna not just do that and and quit and move on and do something else, I wanna save this. And the way we save a channel is this button, the second one in from the left is the button that's gonna save an alpha channel. Now at this point, you'll see me repeat this same operation, this next couple of steps, over and over again to get the result that I want. And that is, I leave the selection active, I click once on the alpha channel that was just created, and now I'm gonna hold down three keys, Command Option Shift on the Macintosh, Control Alt Shift on the PC and click once. And what that does, it creates an intersection selection which really defines it even more. So now that's it, before it selected the highlights overall, now it's gonna select brighter highlights. And then I click on this button again to save that as the alpha channel. Then I repeat that one more time, click on it once, keep it selected, Command-Option-Shift or Control-Alt-Shift, click, and then save a selection. Now, if we look at these alpha channels, you'll see an alpha channel, basically black means not selected, white means it is selected. So you can tell just by looking at the thumbnails, this last one is the darkest uh, channel, and then it gets lighter and lighter, which means this one up here selects the lightest areas. So I'm actually gonna double click on this and put light.
0: Can I interrupt you a second, Dave? Remember, some of our um, listeners can't see you. They're just listening. So when you say this or that, you know, if you could try to be a little more specific, it'd be helpful. Sure.
1: So remember, I'm recording all of these steps as an action. So when I go to play this later on, all of this will happen. So in the second alpha channel, I'm calling that lighter and then go to the last one and put lightest. Now, the confusion for a lot of people at first is the channel looks kind of, you have to think of it as the opposite. So even though this is gonna select the lightest areas, it's because the dark areas don't get selected and the light areas do. So that's why it goes light, lighter, lightest. Now at this point, I've got the, the three luminosity channels I want for the, the light areas. I'm gonna now deselect and go back up to the top and start again, command option or control alt click on this RGB thumb at the very top. But then now I wanna do shadow, so I'm gonna invert the selection. I could do that here through the select inverse or the keyboard shortcut equivalent, either way. And then we, again, click on this new alpha channel, and that's gonna be our first shadow one. Now the same series of steps. I click on that thumbnail, hold down Command-Option-Shift or Control-Alt-Shift, click on that one to make the intersection. Click on that one, do the same thing one more time and make a new one. So now I can go back to this first one. This is gonna be called Dark. And again, you could call these Highlight or Shadows, whatever you want. I just use names like Light and Darker to kind of remind me very quickly without worrying about being very technical about it. Oops, if I could spell, that would be important too. Okay, Darkest and I wanna go back and click on the RGB channel, hit deselect, so that will all be part of my action. Now I go to back to the actions panel and stop recording.
0: And when you, did, when you said hit deselect, you were doing command or control command, D. Yes,
1: thank you, command or control D for deselect. Now that's not a necessary step, but my goal with this action is that once I run it, it will just simply create these six alpha channels ready for me to use, and then I'm ready to work on them right away. So just to prove the point that this hopefully works, here's a separate image that you can see has nothing in the channels panel. So if I scroll right up to the top of this action that I made, and by the way, I could have chosen to allocate an F key shortcut to this. I just didn't happen to, but I could have. In this case, though, I just highlight the name and hit the play button, and you'll see in just a matter of sheer seconds... Now it has all of these alpha channels ready for me to use, including being labeled. So this is an example of something where you invest a bit of time the first time recording the action, but then any image you want to use it on, it's that fast to get it back again and start working with them.
0: Oh, that part is fantastic. You know why? I've seen other people do tutorials about luminosity masking, and I've never seen it explained how to make your own luminosity channels. And instead, what people are doing, they're kind of um, purchasing or using these canned, Mm -hmm. I guess they're little apps or something that will do it for you. But it's so much better to do your own, don't you think? Well,
1: it probably just means that somebody did the steps for them of recording the action. And I've seen some where they have like five variations of this and they have mid-tones as well. And that certainly is another option. But I like the fact that now this is my wording because I did look at one pre-recorded one and it had names that were probably much more technically correct than mine. But to me, light, lighter, lightest just kind of makes sense to me. So with that in mind, now here's how I would actually take advantage of this. So you can see I have, this happens to be a, a smart object coming from Camera Raw. It could also have come from Lightroom where I made some global adjustments. But now I want to make some other adjustments like the dark parts here, like this rock in front of the bridge, I think should be a little lighter. But instead of just using a curves adjustment layer, if I did that, it's going to assume, because nothing is selected, that I'm going to lighten everything. And you can see as I do that, it's lightened the rocks, but also the sky. So I don't want to do that. What I do instead is I go to the Channels panel temporarily and say, well, what part do I want to affect? Dark, darker, or darkest? And let's start with this darkest. Command or Control, click once on that thumbnail, will load just the very darkest parts of the image. Now, if I go back and do a curves adjustment layer, and I'm just clicking right in the middle and dragging up, if you keep your eyes on this area down here where the rock is, watch how the sky doesn't change, but I'm lightening up quite a bit the darker parts. And that's kind of the point of this exercise, is now I can be much more selective automatically and say, do I want to adjust just the lightest parts or just the darkest parts or both? So I could continue working now and say, well, now that I've done that, Let's go back here and say I also feel like these lightest areas are a little too bright. So I'm going to command or control click on that. Go back and use another curves adjustment layer and darken those up just a little bit. And just to make a point, I could also, it doesn't have to be curves. It could be I want to take the light areas. And in this case, I want to use something like hue saturation and say I want to saturate a little more in in the blue areas or whatever I want, but any decision I'm making is being influenced by this mask that's automatically being created from that those channels that I created. So again, the point is you you go through and record those steps once, and now any time you open a photograph and you think, oh, it would be useful for me to be able to adjust just these areas darker light, you run the action. It automatically creates those luminosity uh, masks for you or channels and then you can load them in and the other part of the story is because each of these three are each in an individual adjustment layer at any time I could say you know now that I think about it I think this should be even brighter I'm never committed because I'm not clicking OK to anything I'm just leaving the adjustment layer as is and then I can come back and adjust it as opposed to using these adjustments, which are much more permanent because when you use any one of these, eventually you have to click OK.
0: That's really great. And that just illustrates one of the points you were making earlier about the flexibility of using adjustment layers, as opposed to direct to direct adjustments from the sure. image menu at the top of the screen. Yep. And, you know, the other thing that this brings to mind for me is I think it emphasizes the relationship between channels and layers. And a lot of people don't get that. You know, they think they're completely different. But right. a mask in a channel can be used as a basis for a mask on a layer, as you've right, done. Right,
1: exactly. Well, and when you look at it, it's exactly the same information like here's the light channel that I created, but when I used it, it's the same thing on the on the adjustment layer, so it's basically copied the same information. It just happened that these were generated automatically instead of me having to paint on a mask myself.
0: That's so wonderful. You know we have about five more minutes. Do you have another short thing that you can show us
1: well. I'll just show you this is to make the point for those people that might not be convinced about the whole using adjustment layers versus not. So let's say for the sake of argument that I went and just said, I'm just gonna apply levels to this photograph. It opens up the standard level dialogue box and I could say, I wanna brighten this thing up and I'm gonna overdo it to make a bit of a point here, pretending that I missed the fact that I was blowing out the sky. The biggest problem with this the way I see it is there's this OK button. And in the case here, OK means, OK, that will be a permanent change. So when I click OK, you'll see nothing shows up in the layers panel. The only thing I have is history, so I could go back. But what if I didn't notice that and just closed and saved this? The next time I open this, this is the way it would look. And if I think that I might be able to go back to levels and fix it, No, you can't. When you see a histogram that looks like this with big stripes of white in it, that means you've already made a pretty big adjustment. It's going to be very hard. See, no matter what I do, I'm not recovering that information in the sky. Whereas, let me undo that. If I did a levels adjustment layer, first of all, it shows up on the side here, which is kind of nice because i got much more room to work. But also, if I make the same bad adjustment, you'll notice there's no OK button. So as I mentioned before, you just sort of leave it that way. And at worst, if you realize later on that was a bad adjustment, I can go back and tweak it very easily because it's like it's left almost in this preview mode as opposed to anyone under this adjustment menu where ultimately you have to end up clicking OK.
0: Great tip. You know, to add to that, one thing I do see people do is they go through this kind of non-destructive editing procedure, and then they save as JPEG. And what does that do?
1: (laughs) Well, and I don't have a problem with people that save as JPEG. It's the people that don't save a PSD first before they save a copy as a JPEG. But you're right. A lot of people, I've watched people that do all this non-destructive work, and then the last two steps they do are flatten and save. And I'm like, why did you bother? So I always tell people the best thing you can do is have at least two versions of every document, starting with a multi-layered PSD file and then a flattened version which you can send to your lab or whatever, but at least you know you still have that master file to go back to if you need to.
0: I think that's really important, that concept of a master file. You don't make it smaller. You leave all your layers in it. It's always the one you go back to when you need another copy for another purpose or the client says, "Uh, I think that that should have more contrast. You don't try to readjust the JPEG that you sent to the client. You go back to your master file.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Great. Well, those are all great techniques and great tips. It's been a real pleasure um, talking to you about all this stuff. You know, I love it. I'm just as geeky as you are. (laughs) (laughs) So, tell me, Dave, what's up next for you? I know you're working on something big, right?
1: Well, I'm just have decided after all this time of having training in different places to have a my own online training part of my website. So, I'm just launching Dave the online part of davecrossworkshops.com, where I'll have both short tutorials and full classes. Uh, multi-lesson classes, some of which exist elsewhere that I'm just sort of taking all into one place, but I also will be creating lots of specific content just for that part of my website as well.
0: Well, that sounds like a big undertaking, and I really wish you a lot of luck with it. Well, thanks. Yeah. So again, that's davecrossworkshops.com. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And where else can we find you online?
1: Well, that's uh, I have two—well, I actually have (laughs) too many websites. Um, I have dcross.com, which is sort of my more personal blog that I— unfortunately don't use as much as i should and then i have a website for learningphotoshop.cc and then pscs6support.com for people that still use photoshop cs6 those frankly are getting less attention now that i'm going to have this online part of dave cross workshops because that way i can pull everything kind of into to one spot but again as i mentioned before i can also find my classes on creative live and my dvd on photoshop cafe
0: All exciting stuff. So Mm -hmm. thank you again, Dave Cross, for being with us here on The Fix. And everybody, tune in next week for another exciting episode. I'm sure you'll agree that this episode of The Fix was packed with great information from my special guest, Dave Cross. We're going to make every episode of The Fix this exciting and this useful, so be sure to stay tuned. If you'd like to see more episodes of The Fix or catch any of the other great photography podcasts on the TWIP network, jump over to thisweekinphoto.com using the link below. And be sure to subscribe to TWiP so that you can take advantage of all the membership benefits. Please join me next week for another great guest and another episode of The Fix. This is Jan Kabili.